All right, our scripture reading for today comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 48. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Thank you, Scott, for that long reading. Well done. (laughs) And this is not at all how I was going to start this morning, but it did occur to me as we were singing that it was this Sunday a year ago that was my first Sunday here at Regen. So I just want to say thank you to everyone for welcoming our family and making this a really awesome year. Give yourself a hand. Sure. (laughs) But man, yeah, it's been really great, and we really love being here in Oakland with all of you. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to help pastor this community for the last year. So the new year is upon us. It is 2016, believe it or not, and uh, we're going to begin thinking about what this next year holds for us. Albert will be back. He's actually here somewhere. There he is in the back. Hey, Albert. He'll be back in the pulpit next Sunday starting our new book study, which is going to be in the Old Testament book of Esther. So you can get excited about that, maybe even think about reading that over the next couple of days and weeks as we begin that book study. But that's where we're headed. But today we're going to talk about this passage that Scott just read from the book of Luke. So let's begin by praying and then we'll jump into it. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for a new year. Thank you for this season that we've just been through in Advent and celebrating Christmas and all that that means for us. And Father, wherever people are at this morning, we come into a new year, I'm sure, in many different places, spiritually, emotionally, personally. 
pray that you would meet us in those places and help us to embrace the season that we are in now and to give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear where you are at work. And may we join you in those places. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start out with this. Anybody here familiar with what I would call, I've named this, this is my own diagnosis, okay? I like to call this vacation re-entry anxiety. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say vacation re-entry anxiety? This is where you're driving home, you've been on vacation for a couple days, a week, whatever it's been, and you're driving home, you're flying home, you're starting to get closer and closer to home, and you all of a sudden sense this dread creeping up deep in your soul. And you start thinking about the email that's in your inbox and the laundry that you're going to have to do and all the logistics that are waiting for you. Or you're just thinking about having to get up at whatever in the morning and show up at work on Monday, right? You start to feel that anxiety creeping in. And as you are getting home, you're not even there yet, but as you're getting home already, all of that rest, that relaxation, that life that you've experienced when you've been on this break, it just is like gone, right? <laughs> Vacation re-entry anxiety. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe you do great, and then all of a sudden you're a day into being back into whatever your routine is, and then you just, like, crash. You have the, what I would call the post-vacation letdown, right? This is maybe an extreme example, but from my own experience, this is the worst I've ever had this phenomenon play itself out in my life. When my wife Amy and I were engaged... I was living in Colorado, and she had just moved out to Boston to begin grad school and really start our life, which was not yet one yet, but to start our life out there. And then we were planning a wedding in California. So the six months before our wedding was this crazy logistical nightmare of being in one place for me and her being on the East Coast and planning a wedding on the West Coast. And so we were really looking forward to our honeymoon because it was our honeymoon but also because it was this break. It represented this opportunity to rest after this crazy six months of managing life in so many different places. On top of that, we also knew what we were getting ourselves into after our honeymoon, as soon as we got home. So we flew back, we honeymooned in Mexico. We flew back from Mexico back to California on a Sunday afternoon, picked up a moving truck and put all of our wedding gifts, which to that point were unopened, onto the back of this truck. We got up very early Monday morning, and we drove to southwest Colorado, spent the night on someone's couch, and then early in the morning moved all of my stuff there, which was in storage, onto the truck, grabbed lunch with some people, said goodbye, drove to Denver Tuesday night to spend the night with my aunt and uncle, got up very early Wednesday morning and just started driving, and we didn't stop until we got to Boston. We got into Boston late Thursday night, very early Friday morning. We had a mattress. Our mattress was the last thing we put on the truck, so we pulled that out, slept for a couple of hours, and then it was get to it. Friday afternoon, we started unpacking the truck. And we had Friday afternoon, Saturday, and Sunday to get all that done, open all the wedding presents, unpack everything, get settled into our new apartment because Monday morning I started work. So we knew that that was coming. We knew what had been going on for the last six months. And so we were really treasuring that time in Mexico. Now, that Saturday, we go to Target or wherever to pick up something or return something. And we're sitting in the parking lot, and Amy's phone rings, and it's her mom saying, your grandfather has passed away. So now we have to figure out, in the middle of all this craziness of our first week together in Boston, how to get her back to California. And there's a moment, I'll never forget this moment, 
We're in the kitchen in our new apartment, our first home together, just up to my eyeballs in boxes, trying to figure out where to put this plate and that dish and all that kind of stuff. And Amy's on the phone trying to figure out how to get back to California and figure out all the logistics of family and the funeral and all that kind of stuff. And we just look at each other and it's like, can you believe that one week ago we were on the beach in Mexico? Remember that? That was so great. <laughs> Could we just hit pause and go back to that moment? How many of you have had this experience, right? Vacation, re-entry anxiety, or the post-vacation letdown. And it's kind of, in many ways, I think, just a small way in which this is how life works, right? A lot of times these kinds of things go together. This incredible high followed by the blues, and back to the grind and this big letdown, we go from beaches to boxes and funerals. Now, all of that to say, it's interesting to me that in the traditional church calendar, we are now in a season that's called ordinary time. Okay? We've just been in a season called Advent, right? This amazing season of celebrating the birth of Jesus. And then right after that comes ordinary time. And there's a couple of places in the church calendar where ordinary time is built into the calendar, usually between big celebrations. Like, again, right now, in between Advent and the next one is going to be Lent. So ordinary time is this sort of deep breath moment in the liturgical calendar. And I think this is so brilliant because for a lot of us, we struggle with pacing ourselves. We struggle with appreciating the season of life that we're in. So again, I think the traditional church calendar gives us a gift here by naming the season for us because we can't advent all year long. And here's the other really sort of big truth, sort of hard truth, is we can't go back. As much as we want to go back to that beach in Mexico, we cannot go back. So we must learn how to navigate these high holy days and these ordinary times in our lives. We need to learn how to find God both in December and in January, so to speak. Now, we've spent a handful of Sundays over the past couple of months in the Gospel of Luke, and we've been looking in particular at this middle section in Luke's telling of the Jesus story. It's oftentimes called the travel narratives. It's called the travel narratives because Jesus is traveling. He's on the road moving towards Jerusalem, towards his destiny on the cross. And then it's also called the travel narratives because Jesus is telling stories. Right, All these different kinds of stories. And 10 of these stories, 10 of these parables are unique to the Gospel of Luke. Now today, if you're paying attention and you've been here for this series, you'll know we're not actually in the travel narratives. This passage today comes right before it. It's sort of the prequel, the introduction to that section of Scripture. And so what happens today in this scene that we're going to look at now really sort of paves the way for what happens and the stories that Jesus tells throughout the rest of the gospel. So, let's take a look. Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If it's still open, you can take a look at that again. Luke chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard someone refer to having a mountaintop experience. Here is quite literally a mountaintop experience. All right? Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are up on the mountain when this incredible thing happens. Moses and Elijah show up. God shows up in a cloud. God speaks. This is a profound, spiritual, Advent season kind of moment for these three disciples. Jesus here is brought into direct line with the Old Testament story through these two major characters. Moses, who had, of course, led the exodus from Egypt, led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, and then Elijah, who was considered to be the most revered, most important of all of God's prophets. Now, what in the world is this all about? Why is Jesus hanging out with these guys on the top of a mountain? This is a really important hinge moment in Jesus' story. There's both a looking back that's happening and then also a looking forward. So looking forward, verse 31, it says, Jesus spoke with these two icons of the Old Testament about what? About his departure. Departure in the Greek is the word for exodus. Jesus talking about his exodus with Moses and Elijah. And of course, when we read departure, when we read Exodus here in this context, what they're really talking about is Jesus' death. As he moves towards Jerusalem, that's where the story is headed, towards his cross, towards his sacrificial giving of his life for all of us. So departure here is this hint that there's going to be a new kind of Exodus. There's also, though, this looking back, looking back to the history of God's people. This new exodus that Jesus will lead will be the fulfillment of the Old Testament story that Moses and Elijah represent. So how do Moses and Elijah factor into the big story of God, and what do they reveal to us about Jesus and his role in the story? Well, both Moses and Elijah were critical leaders at important moments in the history of God's People. They'd spoken directly with God. They'd even seen God and heard from God in ways that no one else ever had. And they performed two primary roles. First, they were called to confront kingdoms and powers whose way of life were counter to God's peace, God's shalom, God's intention for all of creation. Moses speaks to Pharaoh, speaks against the power of Egypt as he's called to rescue, lead the people out of slavery, back to the promised land, back to this new era of freedom for God's people. Elijah's story is awesome. If you're not familiar with it, you can read about it in 1 Kings. It's actually some really fun stories. At the heart of Elijah's story is a confrontation between him and the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. 
Ahab and Jezebel had introduced the people of God to a watered-down syncretism, which means that they had mixed other religious practices with what God had asked his people to do. So they were able to keep some appearances of faithfulness, of worshiping God, but really it was just a cover for oppression, for injustice, for greed. The rule of Ahab and Jezebel, the rule of Pharaoh, were what we might call anti-kingdoms. Kingdoms that were opposed to God's purposes for humanity. They were bad news for the people that lived under their oppression. So again, Moses and Elijah, critical figures at these important points in Israel's story. They speak for God. They directly confront these kingdoms of the world. But then secondly, they're also called to call the people of Israel to repent. The word repent in Hebrew is the word teshuva. Everybody say teshuva. Teshuva. Nice. Teshuva literally means to return. It's this idea of you're going in one direction, realize you're going in the wrong direction, so you turn around and you come back. They're calling people to come back to God. Elijah, in the middle of his confrontation with Ahab, gets up in front of the people and he pleads with them, how long... Will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Now, this is exactly the kind of thing we see Jesus doing again and again in the stories and the parables that make up the travel narratives. Just a quick review of some things that we've looked at. Luke 13, we talked about the parable of the fig tree, which was really this funny little story that reveals God's patience with us, how long God is willing to wait for us to teshuva, to come back to him. Luke 14, the parable of the wedding feast and the great banquet about how God throws this party and everyone is invited, but those who actually show up are surprising. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, about this son who leaves, turns his back on his family, goes to a far off land, and then eventually returns. He teshuvas, he comes back. So again, story after story, Jesus is confronting anti-kingdom behavior, anti-kingdom thinking, but also extending this invitation to come back to him, to return. Confrontation and invitation, which again puts him in the same category, the same company with Moses and Elijah. Now, put yourself in the place of Peter, James, and John. You have this incredible moment, this incredible experience where the curtain is pulled back and you see all these connections from Moses to Elijah to Jesus, how God's story is fitting together. You hear the voice of God say, this is my son. And remember, for them, this is still fairly early in the process. It's only been four or five chapters since Jesus asked them to leave everything behind and follow him. So now all of a sudden, this incredible moment of confirmation and clarity, you staked everything to this guy, Jesus, who is really the Messiah, who is really the Son of God, everything you've been hoping for and dreaming for. And so, of course, Peter says, this is good. Let's stay here. Let's build some tents, guys. Let's camp out here at the top of this mountain, roast some marshmallows. Moses, Elijah, come on. (laughs) I totally resonate with this, right? Who doesn't want to camp out in these kinds of moments? 
these incredible mountaintop moments, these moments so full of God's presence and clarity. Let's take a look at what happens next. Verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. This mountaintop scene occurs in all three of what are oftentimes called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all talk about this transfiguration moment where Jesus is hanging out on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. And all three include this same story next. So from the mountaintop to the stubborn demon. Which is an amazing juxtaposition, is it not? This is how life works. Advent to ordinary time. Mountain high to stubborn demons. Beach in Mexico to boxes and funerals. N.T. Wright says it this way, The more open we are to God and to the different dimensions of God's glory, the more we seem to be open to the pain of the world. We're right to be wary when we return from some great worship service, when we rise from a time of prayer in which God has seemed close and his love real and powerful. These things are never given for their own sake, but so that, as we are equipped by them, God can use us within his needy world. The more open we are to God, the more open we seem to be to the pain of the world. We want to stay where it's comfortable, where it's spectacular, where God's presence is so obvious. We want to avoid the places where it's hard and uncomfortable and where these oppositional forces seem to be winning. But Jesus does not stay on the mountain. And the disciples, they don't get to stay there with him either. Now to drive this whole point home, Luke tells us this scene next. Verse 43, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So an argument broke out among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So, Three different scenes, three times we see a reference to Jesus' death. All through these scenes, there's a clear indication about where this story is headed. Scene three, this one we just read, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And of course they don't get it, but it's this incredible foreshadowing of where everything is going. Scene two 
especially in verse 40, Jesus laments the unbelief he sees around him and he frames that lament in this statement about how his time is running out, how he has a limited amount of time with them left. And then, of course, in scene one, this conversation with Moses and Elijah is about his departure, his exodus, his death, all of these little foreshadowings of where the story is going. Right after all of this, Luke 9.51, this is sort of the key verse in our travel narratives series. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is where the story is headed. For Jesus, this mountaintop experience is not just a nice time to hang out with his Old Testament homies, Moses and Elijah. This is about his ultimate purpose. This is about his mission. And so it's critical for Peter and James and John to understand this. They're invited into this moment, not so that they have a cool story to tell, but because they're supposed to be a part of this mission. As Jesus continues to give these hints and insights as to where everything is headed, the disciples, in their typically dense fashion, get into a fight about which of them is the greatest. Here's the thing. They get that Jesus is a big deal and that everything is about to change and that this guy that they've staked their life to is the Messiah, but they're still thinking about how it's going to benefit them. But Jesus tells them that to be great in the kingdom is to be the least, is to be like a child. In a very similar scene in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let me say it again. Jesus and Peter and James and John cannot stay on the mountain. They have to go down. They have to get back into it, back into this fight against the forces and the kingdoms that stand in opposition to Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is clear about his mission and his purpose. Son of Man came to save, to give his life, to be a ransom for many, and he wants his followers to have that same kind of clarity. Now, each of these scenes that we've looked at today illustrate, I think, three temptations, three sort of gravitational pulls away from God's mission, joining him in his work in the world. The first is the temptation to stay where it's safe. Of course, we see this with Peter on the mountaintop. Let's build some tents. It's good to stay here. Now, let me say this. Enjoy those kinds of moments. Enjoy those mountaintop moments. For some of us, they're very rare. They're very fleeting. And when they come, enjoy them. But remember that these moments are there to open us up to a new experience of God's glory and as a result, to open us up more to the pain of the world, to lead us to dive more fully into God's mission of healing and restoration. So there's the temptation to stay where it's safe. There's also the temptation to get frustrated over failure. We see this with the disciples and their inability to cast out this stubborn demon. Even Jesus, it seems like, is a little bit frustrated with failure. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's a personal failure. Maybe it's a way that someone has failed you. Maybe you have this general sense 
that these dark forces, these oppositional forces are winning, you're losing hope. But remember how that scene closes. Jesus rebukes the spirit. Jesus casts out the demon, heals the boy, restores him to his father, and everyone is amazed at the greatness of God. Sometimes failure is just an opportunity for God to come through in a new and amazing way. Third is the temptation to argue about insignificant things. And of course, we see this with the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. We have a lot of these kinds of arguments in the church, don't we? Not here, of course. In the church. <laughs> and some of them, of course, are about important issues and conversations that we need to have. But there's so much to be done. So many stubborn demons to be cast out. Do not get sidetracked by silly arguments. You see, each of these scenes reminds us that our time is precious. The season of life that you are in is precious. James 4.14 says this, You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, back to where we started. Advent, these high seasons of the year are important. They should be a highlight. They should be celebrated. There's nothing wrong with going on vacation. Nothing wrong with having a spiritually awesome moment. We should desire those moments of clarity. But oftentimes, we end up resenting a season like this, a season of ordinary time. And we can miss what God is doing right here, right now. I'm in a program for pastors called Soul Care, and it's this experience that's supposed to help leaders and ministers be poured back into and rejuvenated to kind of stay in the game. And a major focus of this time is to spend time in silence and spend time in prayer, to pay attention, to notice where God is at work. And some of the practices they give us are based on Benedictine spirituality and some of these practices developed by monks and it's really good stuff. It's been really helpful. But there are times where I'm supposed to be doing these kinds of things, and we're also in a season of life where we have a one-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. And our time is not our own. We don't have as much discretionary time as we once had. And so there have been times where I've been thinking about this, trying to implement some of these practices in, into my life, and I'm thinking, man, these monks had no idea. They didn't have a teething 10-month-old son. They didn't have a three-year-old who's tearing the house apart and needs constant discipline. I was lamenting that. I was kind of ranting about that, actually, to one of the directors of the program. And they very patiently listened, very quietly listened. And they asked, well, how do you notice God in the face of your child? How are you experiencing God in those middle-of-the-night wake-ups? Are you noticing God as you prepare oatmeal and play at the park and discipline your kids and do dishes and fold laundry? I think maybe the key verse in this whole text is verse 32 where it says that Peter, James, and John were asleep. And Moses and Elijah were already there. They were already talking to Jesus. And it isn't until they are fully awake that they even notice what's going on. You don't need to be alone on the top of the mountain to notice God. You just need to wake up. So whatever season you are in, know this. It is precious. It is a gift. 
And the liturgical calendar, each season is represented by a color, and of course the color has some sort of meaning behind it that's connected to that particular season. Do you know what the color for ordinary time is? It's green. Green, the color of rebirth and new life. Ordinary time, though it may feel ordinary, is bursting with life and with potential. This potential to be astonished at the majesty of God. So this morning, just two real simple invitations. First is the invitation to wake up. To embrace the season that you are in. Whether it's a high season or an ordinary time season, embrace it fully. And then second is the invitation to notice where God is at work. As you notice him, join what he's doing. Join Jesus in his mission of serving and ransoming and healing and restoring. Don't get stuck on the mountain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and for these two scenes that have been paired together by all the gospel writers. This story of the transfiguration of Jesus, this incredible supernatural moment. And then this scene with the stubborn demon and how that just speaks to our experience of life. These high moments followed by these more difficult moments. So God, this morning we do ask that we would be able to embrace the season that we're in as we begin a new year, wherever we might be. May we be fully awake in the season that we are currently in. And as we notice you at work, may we have the courage to join you in casting out these stubborn demons that we see all over our world. This morning, God, would you just encourage folks to begin a new year with their eyes open and their ears open to where you are at work. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.